Welcome to Living with a Disability, No Big Deal. This podcast is for people who want to learn how to thrive with a disability. It is also designed to share insights for those who have friends or family with a disability. Brad Gabrielson, our host, was born with cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair for mobility. He is a North Dakota native and believes life is about managing challenges with understanding, mental toughness, and determination. Welcome to another episode of Living with a Disability, No Big Deal podcast. Our guest today is Greg Moss. We're going to be talking about a very inspirational person that was that helped with the movement back in back in the early seventies, about seventy one through seventy four, maybe. She was very inspirational with the handic- with the disabled movement back then with, with the rights of, of the disabled and uh, that is Kitty Combs. Hi, Greg. Hi, Brad. Um, I guess we will start out here by reading a just a short little bio about uh, Kitty Cohn, who was, like Brad said, very instrumental in the uh, early American disability rights uh, movement, as far as civil rights and discrimination, things like that. Kitty Cohn uh, was born in 1944. She did pass away in 2015, uh, was an American disability rights activist. Uh, She had uh, muscular dystrophy. Uh, She moved to California Bay Area in 1972 and began working as a community organizer for the disability rights movement in 1974. Initially, Joseph Califano, the U.S. Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, refused to sign meaningful regulations for Section 504, uh, which was a Rehabilitation Act of 1973, which was the first U.S. federal civil rights protection for people with disabilities. After an ultimatum and deadline, demonstrations took place in 10 U.S. cities on April 5th of 77, including the beginning of a sit-in at the San Francisco office of the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. The sit-in, led by Judith Human and organized by Kitty Cohn, lasted until May 4th, a total of 28 days with more than 150 people refusing to leave. Uh, Currently sits as the longest sit-in at a federal building to date. Uh, Joseph Califano signed the regulations on April 28th. Cohn pursued the implementation of Section 504 by protesting at the San Francisco Trans Bay Terminal in 78, um, organizing Disabled People's Civil Rights Day in October 79 in San Francisco. Um, So essentially, uh, from there, uh, later on in 1984, she began working at the World Institute on Disability where she researched international personal care assistance programs. In 1990, she began working for the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, their lawyer referral service, and in 93, became its development director. She was adopted, uh, oh, she adopted and raised a son named Jorge 
from Mexico. So that is the short uh, bio for uh, Kitty Cohn. Sounds to me like she was a very interesting person. I mean, she was very active and you know, did a lot of things. Well, and as the bio said, she was basically the organizer of the sit-in, uh, which has now become what is known as the Section 504, which is the civil rights, federal civil rights um, regulations for people with disabilities and uh, kind of took the reins on that uh, at a pretty early age. So yeah, she... Not to interrupt, Greg, but that was that was kind of like the that the starting point of the American Disabilities Act, correct? Well, yeah, in, in 1973, um, the Rehabilitation Act was on the table for the legislators, and part of that was Section 504, which prohibited. Um, any discrimination of access or things of that nature. We can maybe look at specifically what it said uh, against people with disabilities. And having gotten that uh, through, and many of the things that uh, the 504 had uh, basically was kind of the precursor to the 1990 uh, US ADA Act or the Americans with Disabilities Act, which uh, was signed by President, uh, I believe it was, uh, was it Bush? Yep. The first Bush, Bush uh, 41, Bush. right? Um, yep. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, it was Bush 41 and then Bush 44. So it was the first Bush, the elder statesman of the two. I believe so, yes. So, yeah, they uh, they basically put a deadline on it. Deadline came and gone on getting the 504 passed. And uh, don't you know that that she rounded up the troops, sent out the calls, and they got 150 people to Because uh, I believe the sit-in was in California. And, and the traffic thing was in New York where... They blocked off a whole street and cars can get through. Yeah, yeah, of course it was in camp. Uh, it was in San Francisco, the sit-in. So yes, yes. Um, so essentially, she rounded up the troops and they they actually occupied the entire floor of the uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare for twenty-eight days. Yes, and. A lot of partners stepped up to the plate. I think there was a church that was helping feed them. It was the Black Panthers. It was. Yeah. Uh, Who brought the mattresses in? I can't remember. Yeah, there was mattresses brought in because for a while there, I mean, there was some pretty severely disabled individuals there. I mean, people that had muscular dystrophy, uh, MS, cerebral palsy, and some pretty, you know, severe cases where they normally would not be sleeping or lying on the floor. They needed to help go to the bathroom and take a shower or whatever. Well, yeah, think about it. You got this group of uh, disabled individuals ranging from, you know, moderate to severe. 
And all of a sudden, they're now taken out of their element, which would be like at home where they have help or a caregiver. They have all their stuff there. And it's like, okay, now we're in a public building and we have uh, needs like food and going to the, the bathroom and medication and some, somewhere to sleep. So I took a lot of mental fortitude uh, to stick it out. And uh, I think during that time, Kitty and Judy Human really worked hard to keep the group together and to not bail. Mm -hmm. Because I'm sure there was some uh, certain amount of, you know, I'm going to, I can't take it anymore. I got to take off, but they kept them in there, kept them together until uh, he actually did sign it. That, um, I don't think you would see that these days. I really don't. Now, you know, 150 uh, disabled individuals come into one place. Um, you know, you wouldn't see that these days, I don't think. Really. You don't think so, huh? No, I, not, not, I don't think it would have a very big effect because I think we, they would be more, they would be arrested now. I mean, they would be arrested now, but, but you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, but they don't even really arrest protesters anymore. No, not really, no. And back then it was kind of groundbreaking, you know. Yes, yes, but now it's like, you know, they you, you know, they, they would remove you from the spot and tell you to, you know, you might have to pay a fine and go. Well, home. it's a different time. I think back then they didn't really know what to do with them. Nope. We really can't push them around. No, because we have rights. Yeah. Um, there was too many of them to try to drag out of the building. They certainly didn't want the optics of uh, dragging out uh, crippled people on their backs out onto the sidewalk. I know, I know. So I think they basically just stepped away and said, let's let this play out. I'm sure it'll only be a couple days. And uh, they'll be looking to get out of there. Well, remember, they had a reporter there too. You know, They had an embedded reporter. Uh, they weren't getting any coverage, see? Yep. And they the one reporter happened to uh, take notice of it. They were on strike, weren't they? Was that there was a there was a strike happening in the uh, reporting paper business. Mm -hmm. So he got wind of the story, embedded himself, and was giving live reports. And then the news did carry it. Yep. So they were getting daily coverage. And uh, yep. So anyway, Kitty Cohn um, again instrumental inspirational in the very first uh, movement. I mean, she was born back in, uh, like she said, uh, 1944. Let's see. She said that uh, when she was really young, her father returned from World War II and they moved to Florida. And at this point, she says nobody really was aware that she had muscular dystrophy, although it was misdiagnosed as cerebral palsy as a child. And back in the 40s, maybe they didn't have as much of an idea, you know, of what was what. She goes on to say, I think they're discovering that it can manifest itself in all different ages. Anyway, she goes on to say that uh, she was in Florida 
and in the Jacksonville Beach area. So she was in school and the teacher uh, actually said to her mother that she was walking on her toes. So that began an entire process of seeing doctors. Right about that time, uh, she also made a comment earlier about the army hospital and doctors were like an HMO and the treatment was poor. Physicians were very, very poorly trained and looking back on it, I think that was some of my father's motivation was because that was a way of having health coverage uh, for me. It looked like uh, they moved to Georgia where she really began getting treated with a series of casts and braces when she was probably in the second grade. Uh, and they moved on to Maryland where she lived for uh, a few years. Uh, had a series of surgeries at Walter Reed. And all that, that activity was based on the idea that she had what they thought was cerebral palsy. So what happened was that I was uh, worse afterwards. So after the surgeries, she was actually worse. Uh, then she moved to Japan and she says where there was like a Japanese second wife and her mother living downstairs and they were upstairs. She felt it very culturally enriching because she would go down and, and uh, talk with the grandmother and the daughter taught her Japanese dancing and uh, she said she was a little tottery, but she was really enjoying it. And she was still moving around without any apparatus on. She had casts, but didn't have to use crutches back then at that period. Sounds like they were walking casts. I don't know what a walking cast is. It probably would be the similar to what the ankle and foot ortho or orthotic is now, which would be yeah. like, for example, people who have... Um, different birth defects or spinal cord injuries have worth ankle and foot orthotics. They call them AFOs yeah. and they go under the foot and they're a one piece thing that uh, actually go in front. The older ones used to go behind the calf, but if you can't, if you don't have stability, they go in Albrad, they swing around and they are made out of carbon fiber and they go in front. Really? Yeah, and they hold and they stop just under the knee, and so it holds the knee from, you know, uh, back. collapsing. Yeah. Anyway, she had surgeries there, two hip surgeries, and she knew she was getting worse. And she could tell after the first surgery that she'd lost a lot of muscle. So it sounded like the surgeries really screwed her up, screwed her up when they thought that she had CP and she really had MD. Yeah, the muscles just got weaker faster, I suppose, huh? Yeah. Well, they said she said that it was an appropriate thing to have done with those regard to those surgeries if she had polio, which was the diagnosis at this point. It changed from CP to polio. Uh, it sounded like now, uh, after she became uh, about 15 or 16, they moved to Richmond, Kentucky. Yeah. At that point... Uh, she went to a private school associated with the uh, Eastern Kentucky State College there. So anyway, there was a group of girls. And she said, I'd never been around racism before. This was the first school I also went to in Kentucky, and it was the bottle school. Everything was segregated. This was Richmond, and the town itself was very welcoming. And I got very involved in civic activities. And the people's attitudes were just overly racist. 
So it sounds like that's when she kind of got involved into activism was uh, around that 16 years old. And so she found like took offense to the uh, racism going on and disagreed with her girlfriends, which said, you know, just leave it alone. And she said, well, basically, I don't want to leave it alone. It's a problem. And so very active as far as uh, what her beliefs were. So, so she said she really didn't, didn't like living in Kentucky. So essentially, her parents applied to different boarding schools in Washington again. She got accepted at a number of them. She decided she wanted to go to Mount Vernon Seminary because her friend was there who was in Richmond. She was very involved. She was a co-editor of the yearbook. Um, and she says she was very popular. And then for a variety of reasons, the headmistress threw her out, but all having to do with disability. Uh, she says, I think she was worried about liability looking back on it because she gave me these prohibitions. One of them was that I had to take my bath in the dorm mother's bathtub rather than in my own suite, which, you know, four girls in a bathroom and I couldn't get out of the dorms, dorm mother's bathtub because it was so huge. So I started taking my baths in my own suite. The other thing was that she told me she didn't want me walking down to the hockey field. So there was going to be some award given. And I knew that I was getting the award. And, you know, they have these teams in it. And so she really wanted to go. So the way she used to get around was she'd put her left hand around somebody's shoulder and then she'd use the cane on the right hand. So she walked down to the hockey field and uh, headmistress found out about it, pulled me out of the art class one day and said, you know, I'm so disappointed in you haven't obeyed the rules. And I was their best student. I was outraged. I thought she was so unfair, but I also then, well, uh, she left that to my aunt to tell me that they were putting me out. So then her family again started living in, in Augusta, Georgia. So by that time, she had really moved around. So she's back in Augusta at Mount Vernon. Uh, they wanted her to become a day student, but she was furious. She was humiliated. Uh, and her aunt told her, well, got some bad news. The school thing's not working out with you being a board boarding student there. And uh, Miss Lloyd, the uh, headmistress, is upset, but you can come live with us. And she says that uh, there was no concept on her aunt's part that she could fight this. Just wasn't an idea at that time in her, in her mind. There was no consciousness whatsoever, and it would and it absolutely was the culture then. And she said, my family was scrambling around. She was so, in some ways, she was very unlucky because she went to 13 schools. Combination of the disability and the military meant that she was all over the place. Uh, but on the other hand, she says other kids with disabilities her age were in segregated schools and getting a lousy, lousy education. So her parents were really making sure that she got a good academic academic foundation. So she was able to go to some pretty good schools. Because nowadays, you say, nigger, it's Peyton words nowadays. So she bounced around to a number of different schools. And um, Washington, so DC. she thinks her problems had to do with her desire to be very independent. So her mother in the summer of her freshman year died suddenly, and it was... Uh, at the end of her freshman year, 
she'd already started to get political because she'd been elected to the student senate. Sounds like her mother died of cancer, but she didn't know anything about it. It sounds like they kept it from her. And they, uh, back then, they just told her it was probably nerves. That was the VA. Well, it sounds like then uh, her mother died of cancer. She went to live uh, with her aunt, I guess, who was like a mother to her. And she got involved um, in politics because she was elected uh, at the school she was going to. She said at that point, it was the, uh, in 63, so there was so much going on in the civil rights movement that that's what she wanted to do. And that's kind of was the seed for it. She was an organizer by instinct, it sounds like. So that's the way she was. And then moving along, it looks like she got involved uh, in more of the, the uh, activism. So she kind of got the, uh, the viewpoint that instead of waiting until the regulations were issued and then responding issue by issue, she took the reins. Okay. Did, them beforehand. Did them beforehand, basically. All right. She had, they had put a staff together, paralegals. Um, they all had disabilities. She said they, had, uh, they were blind or deaf or a whole range. And they organized something called the Emergency Something for Emergency Coalition. And that was an area-wide coalition of people with disabilities. And then they organized a support coalition of everybody that they could possibly think of. Now, that ranged from the NAACP to the NOW gang, unions and churches. And it was very, very broad-based support group, politicians, anybody that they could get to sign on. So the day of the rally, see, they organized, they were going to have a rally at the eight different locations of the health and, you know, human services stuff. And so they uh, got the publicity, organized the transportation and what have you for the eight regional headquarters. Now, her demonstration was the one made famous in Crip Camp, which was in San Francisco and was at the uh, HEW headquarters in downtown San Francisco. Yep. And so the plan was, she says, to go ahead and have sit-ins. Now you've heard the name of Judy Human and uh, some of the other names from Kip Crip Camp, but Kitty Cohn actually, you know, was part of that pilot project. Plan was to stay there until the regulations came out the way we wanted them. Tell everybody because they were afraid that if, uh, Health and Human Services found out, and uh, but they tried to tell people that we knew would be willing to sit in and bring something, pillow or something to stay, because they're talking about a bunch of uh, of gimps like us, crippled, cerebral palsy, you know, whatever range, sitting in, not knowing how long, drop everything and go. And so they got the rally going outside. A uh, place called the UN Plaza, April 5th, 1977. So she went into the building. The regional director in his office confronted them. They didn't try to stop them. They didn't even expect us to be outside, I don't think. She said, we had a permit from the city. So we're up there in his office. And the poor man, as fierce as I can be, in my opinions, I don't like to be fierce towards people. And so Judy Human, bless her, she's, you know, she's just as has such bravery about these things. And she played it like for theater, only it was, it was real to her. It's absolutely real to her. So when we got up there, 
She says, we're talking to him in his office. The leadership and all of the other people went in, maybe about 25. It was a big office. Not all of us in wheelchairs, uh, blind people, deaf people, people with mental retardation, developmental disabilities. So we get in there and we say, what are you going to do about 504? And he says, what's 504? She said, this is a civil rights law that you're responsible for overseeing. And you don't even know what it is. The cameras are rolling. And Kitty's like, there was constant press coverage. And she's feeling sorry for the guy. This man didn't have a clue what was coming. So it was the perfect thing to do. And then he said, please, may I be excused to go to the bathroom? And we said, no, we've been waiting all of our lives to go to the bathroom. I think we reported out that part. And it was a tragedy because Channel 7 went all the way, the ABC News affiliate there traveled with us when we went to Washington and they covered every single day and all their film was lost because there was a strike going on. There was a reporter that was embedded in there because there was a strike, so he embedded in with this cause. So they started making phone calls all over the country to find out what was going on in other areas. So then they cut the phones off. So now they're going to figure out, uh, you know, what's the deal? Are they going to come and arrest us? Uh, and then to find out they were afraid to arrest them, Brad. Yeah, I know. They were about 150 people in there. And that would have been a huge deal to try to get us all out of there. They wouldn't have been able to figure out what to do with us. We, and also the mayor, Moscani, was very supportive. Jerry Brown, the governor, was calling. And I'm not sure. He probably told us his police chief not to arrest anybody. We, they had a lot of contacts with attorneys and people in state government and connections to the Brown administration. So that was helpful. And so they had all these committees um, that were set up from the preoccupation days. We had a press committee, an outreach committee, a community for medics. And so they'd gotten a doctor who had dealt with disability stuff and a nurse who also had, and they got legal support committee. And once we got inside the building, we had to have more committees. We needed a food committee uh, so they wouldn't go bonkers and that everybody was taking in a lot of So for food, for instance, they got food from the Glad Memorial Church run by the minister. And they feed hundreds of homeless every day. So we got food from Glad. We got food from Black Panthers who were feeding. American Legion uh, bought us hamburgers. Safeway sent bread and cheese. So it sounds like they ate pretty well, Brad. They weren't starving. Nope. They thought they were like they were at a kick of a buffet. You know? They had some good meals. Yeah, they sure did. Uh, other days, she said there was donuts. There was always something. So every, every single day, they took and they watched the press coverage to see what it was like. And we'd have an analysis. And then would uh, they'd sit amongst themselves, the press committee. Kitty was on the press committee. And then they'd figure out how we're going to respond. They were using, quote, crippled, deaf, and dumb. So then we would, uh, they'd say, quote, we really, we'd have the press conference and we'd say, we really appreciate your good coverage. And we referred to ourselves as disabled people, which was the term that was okay in those days. And deaf people, you know, generally prefer to be called deaf. Deaf and dumb is not the correct expression. 
And so it was an education for the press too. So we did something like every day. And then, and then there was a gal named Julian Bond. Well, she came to the building and who else? Jesse Jackson came to the building and we were getting information from Washington. So uh, there were frequently things that were very newsworthy. They would do things like go ride, try to ride a bus. And then they would ride an accessible bus over in and more changes were coming out of Califano's, Califano's office. He was the uh, secretary to the 504 regulations during the demonstration. More changes and through correct connections we got me, they may have thought it. They thought it up themselves, I guess. So anyway, they knew a couple congressmen and uh, who were on their side. Do you know who they were? So it was, uh, let's see, Phil Burton was from California. It's very powerful. And George Miller was on his their side. Uh, Burton was from San Francisco and Miller was from this, from Richmond, something county, and decided to hold a congressional hearing in the building itself, in the regional health and human services building at UN Plaza. So the people who wanted to testify could testify. <clears throat> and they came out here and they held this hearing. She said there was this guy named Eisenberg who was sent, had to respond to the questions. She went outside, she gave a speech and the people spoke, people's speeches are on their comments or on DVD. And at one point, somebody said, uh, Eisenberg got up, just ran away from the room and locked himself in an office. And Phil Burton, the Senator ran after him and kicked the door and said, come out of there. He had no response. He didn't know what to say exactly. And he had been sent out to sacrifice as a sacrifice. But he was a sacrificial lamb sent out by the department, right? They said, we don't want to go. Let's send this skinny pig. Yep. So he was getting thrashed, locks himself in an office. So it sounds to me like you didn't want to be us to, you didn't want. Um... It was Califano who sent him. The, the, the secretary of the health and human services sent this guy, uh, Eisenberg, out as a just to get thrashed. Mm. Anyway, the list of questions kept growing. So they said, look, we need to do something else. So we just, they decided to send a delegation from their building because all the other demonstration had fizzled out by now, the other, the other seven. So it was hard. And in Washington, she said, you know, they wouldn't let, us, wouldn't let any food in. So they basically got starved out of that one. No medication. They wouldn't let that in. We were there almost a month. So then... I think she said they elected about 12 of us to go to Washington to sort of lend the prestige of the demonstration. And also because we knew the issues backwards and forwards, right? And so everybody who went in that delegation was capable of speaking to the issues. So we got to Washington, or they got to Washington. Um, first thing that everybody proposed was that we go to a vigil outside Califano's house. Somebody looks up his dress in the phone book Turns out California lives right behind, Califano lived right behind her great aunt's house. So she's like, wait a minute. Oh my God. So we go there and they have a vigil, candles, the whole deal. And we're singing. We shall overcome or something. She says. It sounded like it was a, it sounded like it was one big, uh, big crowd of people around the house. Yeah. And uh, her cousin, Jimmy, who's a general, she says, uh, 
goes jogging on his mother's side and the other was on his father. Anyway, he goes jogging by and says, oh my God, this is beautiful. He comes out and joins the prayer vigil. And I'm like, oh my God, because he recognizes me. And so then the next day, they go out to the vigil and D Jimmy is out there talking to the press and saying, my mother's 92 years old and uses a wheelchair and she hasn't been able to sleep all night. Blah, blah, blah. And Kitty's hiding in the back of a truck with a blanket over her head saying she can't deal with it. So anyway, we ran around and followed Califano and Carter everywhere they went because they had this open door administration, you know, every administration has its open door for about two minutes. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we went to the press club and Califano was speaking. A reporter who was accompanying us from ABC, the guy who was embedded in there, had press, press credentials, gets into the press conference and got in the elevator with Califano and started asking him questions. Califano ran out the back door. <laughs> Politician. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to deal with the reporter because the reporter uh, had been totally converted. It was very fluent in the issues. And uh, Califano was not counting on the press being, you know, knowing what the issues were. Mm -hmm. And uh, the reporter actually told Kitty later that it had actually totally changed his life. Uh, his name was Edmund White from ABC. You know if he's still around? I know he's retired. Uh, I would have no way if he is actually actually around or not. But I mean, so you can see here basically what she's saying is. Regarding the Section 504, which was, again, um, discrimination against people with disabilities and to get rid of the separate but equal, right? Right. And have it all as inclusive, accessible barriers and accessibility and, and things like that. So that started the sit-in. And Kitty was very inspirational in putting, getting curb cuts done. And I think the... Uh, Oakland area. Yeah. Like, yeah. Even before that was in, in as far as a law or anything like that, she had it all done, the whole city. Mm -hmm. To me, that's, that's really cool. It pays, as far as disabled people, it pays to be stubborn, I guess. But, you know, as this went on, and in the House of Representatives, tons and tons of press answering each question, so on and so forth. There was a deaf man, and he said, Senator, we're not even second-class citizens. We're third-class citizens. And everyone started to cry. Uh, everybody was tired, you know, they weren't sleeping, and they were stalling, right, on signing the 504. And they knew that whatever came out of the Health and Human Services would be the guidelines for all the other federal agencies. So she knew that if it ended up of a policy of separate but equal, which was where they were going, it looks like, they weren't going to get really good regulations for transportation, housing. Um, so we thought of it as the overall issue, even though there weren't just one set of regulations, or there were, there were just one set. So finally, after various confrontations in this meeting, we got word that the regulations were coming down and that the changes were not going to be made. The one thing that they lost on was what they wanted because this would have been a huge one. We wanted secondary 
I don't remember the term, but for instance, if it applied to a university, it applied to contractors with the university. So insurers at the university would not be able to discriminate. Well, can you imagine if health, life, whatever insurers couldn't discriminate? I mean, that's we're always discriminated against on and on on those issues. So we lost on that, but we won on everything else. So she said it was phenomenal. If you don't remember the date it was signed, it's in April. Anyway, that was the, uh, the precursor, right, to the 1990 Americans with Disabilities Act. Correct. Uh, and so Kitty actually went on. Uh, she mentions, okay, in the 32 years now since, after the 504 regulations were signed, and it was 32 years when she was writing this, so it's been much longer now. She was working on transit still at that time. She was working at the Department of Transportation uh, 504 regulations. And uh, she was going to be one of the 504 trainers that went out and uh, and went out and did the training. And so she was working on what was called trans bus, which is a type of bus with a low floor bus with a ramp that everybody went in and out the ramp. And the idea was that it's much easier to produce. So bus designs, things like that. Um, transportation department had mandated it, but nobody wanted to produce it. So you've heard the name of DeLorean, right? A, a car? The John DeLorean? The only production was John DeLorean of that bus. And they, uh, she said he was a wild man, but he did design the bus. And now there are buses that are very similar to Trans Bus, but the deadline for those buses to be in production came and went, nobody made them. And nobody was going to sit in on General Motors. So the 504 regulations for transportation were reasonable. They allowed us to do, so the anyway, the amendment came up to the service transportation bill. It allowed transit authority, authorities not to go forward with the mandated purchase of accessible buses and reservation renovations if their rapid rail systems, like the L in Chicago, the New York subway, okay, there was a lot of pushback to, uh, you know, being able to pr provide the accessibility. The Cleveland Act, I guess, was an act basically in 1981 that I think was the act that would have, I have to check on that, but making the, uh, you know, the transit business accessible. Yeah. And that failed. All right. But then uh, that was basically fixed up by the ADA Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So that's quite a story by uh, by Kitty Cohn here that she uh, had, you know, quite a life after that event. She was quite a movement or shaker, she continued to, yeah, be inspirational and things of that nature. Uh, she said she went on um, and was on the board of the DREDF. Something to do with the disability, uh, you know, issues. Mm -hmm. Looks to me like part of that was they trained uh, all kinds of people in their rights and defending the 504 um, in the Supreme Court, getting the schools, uh, getting them out of the schools for abusive behavior modifications and things like that, fair housing, all that stuff. So I tell you, she lived, I'm not sure how long she actually lived. Do you remember? Uh, I think she was 75. Okay. Yeah, and that actually was uh, quite a bit longer, I think, than they expected because 
Yeah, um, because in muscular dystrophy, uh, the friends that I have with muscular dystrophy don't live very long, maybe 25, 30 years tops. Yeah, and so it sounded like at one point she actually, they had told her, you know, she's getting weaker and she wanted to have a baby while she could still walk. And I don't know if she ever did. I don't think she did because she ended up adopting a kid, I think in Mexico, right? Or Yep. What was his name again? Jose. Or... Was it Jose? I believe so. Yeah, she adopted a son because I know she always wanted to have uh, children. Yes. And uh, between her activism and her schooling and different things, you know, and then having the the disability, it was made it kind of tough. But um, but she always wanted to have kids, so indeed she finally did uh, did have a child. Mm-hmm. So again, Brad, what are your what kind of are your clothing closing? thoughts about this kitty cone and this uh not only the 504 section 504 regulations which was the uh discrimination bill against people with disabilities but also with all of the other uh actions she was involved in she was a, uh, my opinion of her that she was a go-getter i mean she uh didn't let grass go on her feet she, um, she's like judy and uh even the rest of the people from Cryptam, she they didn't let nothing stop them. And uh, I think the, the um, people, you know, around the country should really give them a high five because I wonder where we would be today. That's that's my opinion of the whole works. You know, if it, you know, so you know, so it was, it, you know, it was quite a. Her story was a good read, and if people have a chance to uh, look at Crip Camp on uh, Netflix, it's a as a wonderful documentary. It gives you a little history on, uh, you know, what the sitting and all all that that's all on that's all I'm documented in it was a, it's a fantastic show Greg and I and and um, Jennifer watched it yeah we've watched it several times yes we have and it was up for an Oscar uh, yep. on uh, at the Oscars it did not win but uh, it was pretty exciting to have been uh, nominated, nominated. Well, sure that's an honor. Especially since it was made, uh, what, in the 70s? Yeah. So they did a wonderful job. Um, So if people want the information, you know, that we've kind of referred to and and read from the transcript on Kitty Cohn, I mean, they can certainly email Brad Gabrielson, you know. And, of course, his email is bg Marlboro. B-G-M-A-R-L-B-O-R-O, like the cigarette uh, that he smokes a lot of, uh, at gmail.com. And then he can email you that uh, that transcript, which is very interesting. And uh, once again, it provides a lot of insight in one of the pioneers who forged the way 
so that disabled people would have more equal rights, be less discriminated against, have more access to society, to buildings, to bathrooms, to building codes and everything else. Uh, so really, Judy uh, Human, uh, Denise uh, Shear, Shear uh, Kitty Cohn, Jim Lebrecht. Jim Lebrecht, people like those, people like that are, uh, were integral. So I think it's, I think it's important to remember the past when you talk about these things didn't just drop out of the sky, folks. This, these uh, concessions and building codes and uh, civil rights, those were fought for very, very hard, very difficult. Uh, I mean, 28 days they sat in there and suffered greatly. Uh, they could have given up because the government was not going to pass that bill because it meant they would have to do stuff, spend money. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to do it, but this group basically said, come hell or high water, we're getting it done. Basically, yeah. And, and, it, and it was a, I think what it is, is power of numbers. They were kind of afraid so much of people going in there. Back then, when it would, what, what were they going to do, arrest them all? I don't think so. You know, so, you know, um, they kind of put them in a pickle, especially with international rules like it did. Did you see the, the, uh, the, the police force trying to come and arrest all those guys in wheelchairs? Back then, I'm sure they didn't have uh, a police station that was handicapped accessible, you know, or, or whatever, so, you know. And you really have to thank uh, um, Tom Harkin, too, because he really pushed it as far as the Senate is concerned. So, you know, as far as the representatives, he was, a, you know, he was very uh, monumental in doing his part. So, yeah, it kind of put uh, the government in a pretty awkward position because they really didn't know what to do with. Yeah. <laughs> That's with true. these individuals. That's very true. So, yep. Well, anyway, very, uh, very interesting uh, topic. Very interesting. A uh, lot of meat to chew on here. Yep. A lot of things to unpack. I think if, unless you have uh, any other comments, we should probably sign it off, Bradley. Yeah. And, um, you know, I really appreciate your time, Greg. And we, we did a lot of research on this one. Um, she's an, like I said, she was an interesting lady, and uh, God bless her. And, um, and you know, we're, we're sorry she's not around anymore, but she's in her thoughts. So I think we'll uh, sign off until next time. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Living with a Disability No Big Deal podcast. Talk to you all next time. God bless. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with a Disability, No Big Deal. Sponsored by Rollaram, this podcast features Brad Gabrielson, who encourages everyone with a disability to live life to the fullest. Rollaramp is a global company based in North Dakota, dedicated to helping people find solutions to accessibility needs. 
We hope you'll join us again next time on Living with a Disability, No Big Deal. 